Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me on this show is Troy Cross, who is a philosopher at a uh, college, at Reed College in the US, has a PhD in philosophy and has been brought into the Bitcoin rabbit hole, has been here for a little while, bouncing around as you'll learn from his past story. And it's just so interesting to me that philosophers are being drawn to Bitcoin and Bitcoiners are being drawn to philosophy. So there's a lot of overlap here and a lot of discussion to be had. As you will hear in this conversation, Troy certainly has some alternative views, but these are conversations that need to happen. And this is something that I was excited to get into him about, especially around education. We can all learn from each other. And I hope you guys uh, reach out to Troy in the DMs and further these conversations. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on, Troy. Thank you for giving up the time. Before we get into the discussion, I would like to make sure everybody is aware that there is a big, huge, damn conference going on, 6th to the 9th of April in Miami, and the countdown has begun. We are almost there. If you can get there, please check the travel restrictions, especially if you are trying to get across from Europe. Make sure you are able to enter before you buy any tickets. But uh, the way it's going to be set up, day one is industry day. It's a four-day conference. Day one's industry day for those people that are looking to build in the space to meet other builders and network and find their team, find their tribe, find their investors, whatever it might be, showcase their latest thing. Day two and three of the conference, that's where all the good stuff's going to happen. There's going to be huge announcements, apparently, promised by Nayib Bukele, the president of El Salvador. The other names that you know in the space by now sailor adam back elizabeth stark jack mallers all these guys they're going to be there as well as many many people as you can imagine are turning up for this one and the day four is going to be a music festival sound manifest headlined by aoki alongside with many other guests that are going to be coming along for that day to party on late into the night use code bitten at um, checkout for all of your tickets from general admission all the way up to whale pass for 10% discount. But again, please make sure that you do double check that you can get there. Now, the stacking companies that I want to highlight that support the show and are gonna help support you throughout the rest of your life if you use them to stack, you've got coincorner.com in the UK. You can use euros and pounds, set up auto buy. They are doing some great work. Danny's hopefully got some very nice news coming your way very soon we're all sitting here with fingers crossed bitcoin reserve are going to help you stack up to a thousand pounds a day on your card or help you put on a big position fifty thousand pounds and over or euros you will get a white glove service and talked through everything you need to know perfect for boomers if you've got the boomers that are looking to enter the space this is going to be the place and self-custody is right up their alley and if you're going to self-custody make sure you're using a hardware wallet bitbox o2 bitcoin only edition by shift crypto is the perfect piece of kit 
Make sure you're stacking with Relay across Europe, R-E-L-A-I, and Swan Bitcoin in the US. Here's Troy. All right, we do have recording in progress this time. Troy, great to meet you. Nice to meet you, Daniel. And I don't know your daughter's name. It's, it's Lauren. Lauren, nice to meet you, Lauren. And, and the, yeah, the, you just... the, the, the shtick of the show, Troy, is that Lauren gets to ask the first question to, to any of the guests that come on. So prepare yourself because uh, you, you were telling me just pre-record before I stopped you. I believe you have two kids of your own. I do. Yeah. Margaret and Oren. And um, yeah, M Margaret is five, about to turn six, and Oren is eight years old. So have yeah, we take family. This weekend, we may, my son has made me promise to take him on a sleeper car in a train, which he's okay. never done before. And uh, because I just recently went to San Francisco, I made him a promise that I would do that. So yeah, after we get done with this, I'm going to try to reserve a sleeper car for us to go somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, Did we're you have any trips train. in mind? He, it's all about the train for him. It's not about the destination, right? It's about that sleeper car, which I actually think he's probably going to hate. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends how you do it. Because the, the only sleeper car I've ever been on uh, on a train is with my wife when we were 21, I think. And she fluked. She, she used to work in the travel industry. And she, she did one of these stupid um, prizes. Well, it wasn't stupid. It was perfect. It worked out for us in the end. And she won a crossword puzzle. And we got to spend uh, one or at least one, maybe two nights. It was a long time ago uh, on the Orient Express between uh, wow. Chiang Mai and Bangkok. And I can guarantee you that is an experience. It was one night. It was one night. Uh, and that was, awesome. uh, yeah, that was an amazing experience. So uh, yeah, I don't there are sleeper you know cars about... and there are sleeper cars. Yeah, I don't know if you know anything about the uh, state of rail in the U.S., but it's you know you're in, you're in France, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, I've been on trains in France, and I've <laughs> it's it's sorry we have Amtrak, and uh, it it yeah it, it it's like uh, it's it's awful. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, trains are never totally awful, but it's awful compared to everything everything in your country <laughs> yeah okay well maybe you want to okay. you know tell your son let's wait until x price of bitcoin before we do the sleeper the sleeper train experience and we can really make it uh, something special but uh, all right lauren what do you got before okay. we geek out on trains what yeah you got? uh so my first question is uh, why do you like bitcoin what a killer question what a beautiful question well, I like it because it's a beautiful idea. And um, it made me rethink about, rethink everything about what money is and uh, how finance works. And it just, it's led to an incredible adventure. Bitcoin has been like a decade long vacation from the rest of my life. <laughs> Actually, it's been an incredible escape. But most of all, I'm a philosopher and philosophers like, um, ideas and they like especially ideas that are clever and ingenious and exciting and make you go wow make you go uh you know make the lights turn on and bitcoin is did that for me made the lights come on very bright you know that aha moment when you learn something cool 
yeah. Bitcoin is like many, many aha moments and many, many intense aha moments across many domains of knowledge. And so, yeah, I love beautiful ideas. It's a beautiful idea. One of the most beautiful ideas I've ever seen. How's that? You know what philosophy is? Philosophy, I, uh, I think I might know. Well, but, you could ask a question. But I'm not right sure. Now. So yeah, what is philosophy? <laughs> no, I I want to hear your. I want to hear what you think it is. Hmm. Uh, philosophy. What no wrong I, answer. What I thought what philosophy is is where they research about a lot of stuff like kind of like a scientist but not like a scientist oh so good you're so bright <laughs> you're so bright you should become a philosopher <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 your dad's like no um <laughs> yeah so, um, you're you're so right here's how i think about philosophy it's like you have these questions that are really important to just being a person like what is justice what is good and what makes something good or bad and what is ultimately real and what is merely apparent but not real and what is knowledge and what is justified belief or rational belief or when you say someone's irrational what do you what do you mean by that and how much of the world can we know and even what is science <laughs> what is beauty what is art all of these are great philosophical questions and uh they're kind of like science except we don't have a science to answer those questions yet we don't have experiments that can tell you what justice is yeah or what beauty is right so i think of but like physics used to be part of philosophy and physics is science biology used to be part of philosophy and biology is science so i think of you know what a startup is right like a startup company yeah do you know what that is yes so philosophy is a science startup. It's what all of the sciences used to be before we figured out really good methods for answering the questions. Once we got a good method for answering the question where we can design an experiment and test it, it becomes part of science. Before it becomes part of science, it belongs to philosophy. So we've got all those leftover super hard questions that nobody knows how to answer yet, but are really important to us as human beings. And that's what philosophy is. So you're right, it's kind of like science, but not science. It's about the best answer I've ever heard about what philosophy is. <laughs> not just from a child, but it's as good as any answer I've ever heard from anyone. Nice. I, yeah, because philosophy is, I mean, I, I'm, I've never really heard of it and I don't really study it, but... Um, <laughs> you still knew what it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I will interject here because... Uh, I have gone very much down the rabbit hole of alternative education. We homeschool. Lauren does self-directed education. I've interviewed Peter Gray, who wrote the book Free to Learn. And one of in one of those interviews, he, he said to me, children are natural philosophers. Yeah, I think that actually the right way to think about philosophy is that everyone is a philosopher some people are socialized out of it <laughs> and yes. that's usually just called like growing up but philosophers like remain frozen in childhood in part of their their minds you know they're 
their inquiry and imagination is like frozen in childhood. And that's what, that's another way of defining what philosophy is. <laughs> it's just like when adults say, oh, don't think about that, or there's no real point to continuing to think about that. It's kind of pointless. You know, uh, uh, you just don't do what the adults tell you to do on that. <laughs> you just keep thinking, you just keep being a child, right? You just keep mm. being a child, but you you also get more disciplined about it. You You just keep playing. Philosophy is play. It's a mental play, right? But it's like, you know how you, when you're playing really hard, you know, you know this right from you still you still play, right? Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. I still play. I still play. <laughs> what do you play? What kind of what like what do you like to do when you play? What kind of play do you engage in? Um, I, uh, like games or whatever. What's your favorite way to play? What's my favorite way to play? Uh, to play. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's just, it's just this big thing that encompasses everything in your life. It's not some particular, see, that's another difference. Yeah. Like your whole life is play. Yeah. Adults play, but adults will play like, like they'll play basketball at noon, right? They have yeah. a way of playing and a time of playing, but for you, play is life. Yeah. And that's beautiful. And uh, I can't say that's true for me because, um, you know, I have a job, uh, which is teaching and, and I have all these administrative duties and I've got a calendar and it's like very like, well, but for me, my play is philosophy still and Bitcoin is play for me. And you never work, you will never work as hard as you play, right? You can't work as hard as you can. When you play, you're, you're all in, mm -hmm. in a way that work, you, work is always for the sake of something else. Play is for its own sake. And yeah. so you will never work as hard as you play. And if you can make learning your play, then you will outpace anybody who is working to learn, working to learn, to get a job, to, to, to become successful, to whatever, to meet the next milestone in their life. But if you're learning to play, if play is learning for you, then you're gonna, you're gonna grow faster and quote unquote, work harder without it ever feeling like that than anybody who's got it the other way around. And it's so precious because children are all like that at some point, you know? And uh, my kids are not homeschooled and there's various reasons we can't do that, but it's like, it, it just hurts so much to see learning become something other than play when these kids learn in ways that make me so jealous. <laughs> also, you probably have a great memory, don't you? Like. Kind of like I I, I only remember it's weird like when there's boring stuff it doesn't really go in but when it's like yeah. made in a fun way made in a funny YouTube way then then yeah goes in. then it sticks with you or like weird stuff like I don't yeah. know I have no idea how I remember weird stuff even though it's the <laughs> weirdest stuff on planet Earth what's the weirdest thing you remember um, Give us some better not be about me. No, uh, no, it's it's about frogs, though. <laughs> That's weird. My, my son has so much random knowledge of the world; it's insane. He doesn't know important stuff you should know, but he knows everything you shouldn't know. It seems, <laughs> you know, because he just picks it up and and yeah. So that's another thing. If you're playing, you remember because there's intensity and there's love and there's joy. But you don't remember if you're just learning to work. It's just like this thing you have to shove in your head. It doesn't mean anything to you. And it falls right back out again. 
Yeah. You know, so that's beautiful to hear. I hope you always just, keep, I mean, you are a philosopher. You knew what philosophy was because you kind of are one. It's, it's, it's continued childhood. It's yeah. not letting go of those questions. It's not giving up on them because they're too hard. Mm. It's being open. It's being open and using your imagination to play in a realm of ideas. Keep entertaining ideas that are foreign and different from your own to, to help you understand other people and make progress on those questions. Yeah, that's awesome. Right. You're done? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yes. Okay. Yes, well, do you want to say good night? Yeah. See you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Good night. Good night. See you. Thanks, Troy. Uh, all right, we got a lot to cover, man. Like, uh, well, well oh, yeah, first okay. of all, first of all, the the plebs need to know who you are. Like, uh, that there's yeah. uh, all of a sudden you come across my radar after you appeared on Dennis's. Uh, podcast and uh, a few of the guys on Twitter were like retweeting it around and uh, wanted to hear more from you. Uh, Dennis and I are on different continents, so we, we we probably have slightly different listenership. So why yes. don't you just uh, let us know, like, uh, who is this pleb named Troy that uh, has come out of nowhere and joined the Bitcoin narrative? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here and to introduce myself to people and my idea. Um, I'm a philosopher, academic philosopher. I came into Bitcoin in 2011. Um, and I started mining in 2011 and got really involved in the uh, forums, first Bitcoin talk, and then later uh, Reddit, our Bitcoin. But always anonymously, I didn't come onto this scene because I prefer actually not being visible. I prefer that. I came onto this scene because I had, well, first of all, I had uh, reservations about Bitcoin's energy use and its impact on the environment that stopped me from mining back in 2011. I did some back of the envelope math and I kind of calculated like what, how much energy Bitcoin mining would use at that time with a 50 block, 50 Bitcoin block subsidy if it were at the market cap of gold. And I can't remember, I can't reproduce my math, but I did some rough math at that point and was like, wow, that would be like all the electricity in the world or some gr grotesque number. And it was like, I can't really keep on mining like this. And so I turned off my miners and donated them to a local charity that teaches kids how to program and gives them computers. And I had four graphics cards each in two different miners. And so it was like a really high-end gaming machines basically with, uh, you know, crappy CPUs, but really powerful GPUs. And that's what we mined with back then. And uh, so I stopped mining because of those concerns, but I stayed involved in the community because I like the ideas, uh, because I was also put off like a lot of people by the 2008 financial collapse and the bank bailouts. Um, I was put off by, by the whole banking industry. The more I read about that industry and the more I learned about it from my students. And I was thrilled by the idea that Bitcoin could disintermediate that industry and the grift that's associated with it and, and impose some discipline on this revolving door between government and, and finance. Um, I did peer-to-peer -peer lending myself, realized I couldn't really do that successfully because I didn't have access to the discount window at the Fed. You know, like I couldn't fractional right. reserve lend. I, 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 I had e-gold, I was interested in that. 
um, I was like, you know, gold is just not practical for moving around, but there's this thing called e-gold and I got interested in that, but it was centralized. It was eventually shut down by the government. Um, so I was kind of primed for Bitcoin, loved it, ran into this ESG, what's now called ESG FUD. <laughs> and, and it was convincing to me, it convinced me enough not to mine, but I kept holding a little bit. And then I just spent a lot of Bitcoin anyway, kind of, then I had two kids moved a couple times in and out of the Bitcoin community, kind of kept my toe in the water, but not like deep because I had, I'm, I'm a busy guy, a parent and a professor and everything. Um, and then I came back into the space really when a friend of mine, Andrew Bailey, uh, who's a professor at Yale NUS in Singapore, uh, posted something on Facebook about Bitcoin. And I was like, oh, I know Andrew. And there's, so there's a, there are other philosophers into Bitcoin. And I found uh, this crew, which is a little research collective known as Resistance Money, um, written a bunch of papers on Bitcoin. Uh, and it's, it's Andrew Bailey, it's Craig Wormke and Bradley Rettler. Um, Craig is at Northern Illinois University. Bradley is at University of Wyoming, all philosophers. And read, I read their stuff and they were writing a book proposal, which is now under contract with Rutledge on the philosophy of Bitcoin. And uh, that was pretty exciting. And I just shot off some comments back to them. And, and that really pushed me into thinking more deeply about the energy issue and revisiting it. And I was kind of falling back into the rabbit hole again when I saw like Kevin O'Leary at Miami conference last year touting this like green coin versus blood coin. He had green miners on the stage. He's going to sell people greenly mined coins. And I was like, no, 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 that's all wrong. Because I'd been living in a way with like thinking about the impact that I was having on the environment as a holder of Bitcoin. And I realized that his whole mental model of how Bitcoin produces emissions was wrong. And when I realized what he was doing wrong, I saw a way to fix it. I saw a way that you could hold Bitcoin without any carbon footprint, essentially, without any carbon impact. And I saw that his way was not that way. And then I reached out to Andrew to help me develop this idea. And we did. We wrote a white paper about it. And then I realized this white paper is like not going anywhere. You know, it's just like a paper we wrote. We didn't publish, send it up to a journal or anything, but it's an idea for how you can hold Bitcoin without any environmental, without any carbon footprint simply by mining Bitcoin. And so my presence on Twitter and how I came onto the scene was I put myself there to usher this idea into the discussion among Bitcoiners. Um, it's a system of carbon accounting and it's a way of holding Bitcoin in a carbon neutral way, such that if people do it widely, it will green the network over time but it'll also usher in lots and lots of money that's not right now able to invest in Bitcoin. And that combination will fund basically the Green New Deal. That combination of lots of money coming into Bitcoin, but also lots of money coming into green mining is what we need to transition our energy system from a fossil fuel-based system into a renewable or sustainable energy system, right? So then it's like, okay, once all those pieces kind of came together, it's like, I, I, ha I have to come out as a persona on Twitter because this idea is kind of complex. 
it needs to be heard far and wide. And then the community needs to vet the idea. And then they need to be asking companies to help provide uh, services and products that map the idea. Like I basically, I need to manifest <laughs> this, re this reality that I can see and I need to share this idea. So the reason I'm here, I'm, I'm just a philosopher and a pleb and I've been around for a decade, a little more. But the reason I'm here talking is not because I want to be a Twitter influencer. I don't. I have tenure. I'm a full professor. I'm happy with that. Um, and it's not because I want to make money. Um, if someone wants to pay me to consult, I'm not going to turn it down. But I'm giving this idea away for free. It's open source. I want to see it happen. And uh, yeah, it's weird. I feel like it's like a billion dollar idea and I can't give the thing away. I'm trying to give it away, but I can't, you know, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing it out there in the public sphere. So anyway, that's sorry to go ramble. I know it's we're pressed for time, but that's who I am. I'm an academic philosopher and a longtime Bitcoiner. Uh, you know, I bought my first Bitcoin at like less than 10 bucks, a Bitcoin on its way up to 27, spent a lot of it down at like $3 a Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, I, I so I've been through all these ups and downs, uh, made a lot of dumb trading moves. I've lost Bitcoin. I've had Bitcoin stolen. Uh, I, um, I've been through the whole roller coaster, like, uh, you know, emotionally and, and financially I've ridden the whole thing, you know? Um, but I was happy to do so from the sidelines until having this idea. And then I was like, no, people need to hear it. They need to go through the process that I went through, and then we can actually make, you know, the world better <laughs> if we follow through on this idea than, than if we don't. And I kind of think people will come around to this idea anyway. It's not like I discovered it. It's like, it's just a matter of time before people get here. It's just a question of when. And so I'm really here to kind of accelerate the adoption of the idea. Okay. And there's That's so fine. much, there's so much in there. I want to talk to you. There's a about. lot in there. <laughs> yeah. I'm not pressed for time. We can go as long as you, as long as you have, uh, I'm, I'm happy for, for just this to flow. Uh, shit, man. 2011. Yeah. And on Reddit. Like maybe May, uh, something like that. Reddit, the subreddit didn't exist yet. Wow. Uh, like Andreas wasn't on scene yet. Yeah, I, I found the white paper right away. Like, my wife now wife, then like gave me a she gave me like an article and like the first thing that came up when I searched was like, you know, someone linking to the white paper. So I, the white paper was literally like the first thing I read beyond a, some cheesy article about how the price was up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right behind and me. I, and I can't say I understood it all. Like I didn't know anything about cryptography really. This is you know, this I, is what's really really like amazing. First of all, like I. <laughs> I read the thing, I stand here in front of it and I read it and I read it and I, and I come from a financial background. So I kind of like, I get that little bit of it. The computer scientists will get like probably 90% of it, but you're a philosopher. So how did it, how did it, how or why did it click with you straight away? Well, you know, I knew how e-gold failed, right? So it was centralized. So the idea that you could do this decentralized but mimic gold's limited supply. Like right away, that was just enticing. Then the question was, how would it work? 
And I did know that there were these functions that were like one way, easy to figure out in one direction and hard in the other, right? So I knew that those functions existed. That's famous. I mean, I know a little bit of, I mean, I know logic and I've taught logic and there's the history of computer science and history of logic are just the same thing, right? We like, we read Church and Turing and Gödel, the same as, it was philosophers who invented computer science. <laughs> I think I was saying it to your daughter, right? Computer science also spun out of philosophy. It was logicians, mathematicians, and philosophers. Uh, if you look at what department people were working in, right? Gödel's in the philosophy department at, um, at Princeton. So it, 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 it's kind of like, I know the history of computing. So anyway, I know about these functions. Um, and then uh, I did figure out proof of work. I did figure out the difficulty adjustment, you know, which is awesome. Uh, it, 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 it was hard going, but I also asked people questions. I, you know, setting up my miners, I didn't know anything about like, like Linux. So I didn't know how to like set up a miner. So I had to just ask people and on Bitcoin talk forum, like, can you help me out? Like I'm, and they'd give me this like 40 step thing I had to do and it would always fail at some point of it, right? It was not, not even easy to just set up and run a miner if you were completely computer illiterate, which I was. <laughs> so yeah, I, I was gone. My wife said I just disappeared. Uh, we were renting a house from the college. This is another reason I stopped mining because I had free electricity from the college, no electric bill, right? So I felt really weird about that mining on their on their dime but uh she said i just like disappeared and i would come up and just kind of babbling incoherently making no sense at all to her and then i would just go back down you know and that was like i don't know at least a couple weeks of just learning um the, the I, I mean this is not alone i mean I've, I've read and heard other people say the same thing right this is like a honeypot <laughs> for you know for for philosophers i mean neil degrasse tyson describes philosophy as this possible place where physicists can get stuck and he warns against it right like don't go into philosophy you'll get trapped there you know so i'm one of those people that gets trapped by a great idea or a great question and i got trapped hard by the bitcoin idea was Egold the the precursor? Like Egold, that that must have pulled you in philosophically somehow. It, it like, didn't. You know what the funny thing is? Egold didn't really pull me in philosophically so much. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a deep idea. It was just like, um, actually, the way it happened was that someone tried to sell me a set of really nice speakers. I used to be an audiophile and have this beautiful stereo setup, and I was constantly tinkering with it. And so I found these gorgeous speakers, like they were like $20,000 speakers, but they were selling them for like 8,000 or something. And they wanted to be paid in e-gold. And I was like, what the heck is that? And so I found out that the speaker thing was like a scam and I didn't, um, you know, send them an e-gold, but I did get into e-gold as a result of that. Right. And then I was like, oh, that's a, you know, interestingly independent of the federal reserve, but more functional in gold. And, um, that would be cool, but it wasn't like philosophically deep. I didn't go down a rabbit hole. I went down a rabbit hole in like, in terms of uh, how, how does banking work? How does the financial system work? That was a rabbit hole. That's still one that I'm not entirely, I never got to the bottom of that one. <laughs> I never totally got to the bottom of that one. And partly because the Fed just keeps changing what it does and how it works. And so you think you understand how it works. And it's like, no, no, it's all like 
reverse repo market now. Like it's not the thing you think it was. I, I'm always hearing that from whatever. But it, 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 even that, like the Fed, it's not philosophically to me really deep. Whereas the white paper was deep, you know, it, 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 because first of all, you take you take gold and then you 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 take the non-monetary stuff away, you know, just like Satoshi says. Imagine it's like this gray, boring substance that doesn't have any of the non-monetary qualities of gold. It's not shiny, it's not conductive, it's not useful for industry, right? So it, it's like purely abstracting the moneyness of gold away from gold, right? And then an algorithmic supply. So there's no accident of where the gold veins are, what discovery is, no accident, there's no unknowns, there's no inequality of distribution around the planets in some places and not at others. You know, you're in Alaska, you get a lot of gold, you're elsewhere, you don't know. It's like Bitcoin is just like this, a pure market, a single market mining that anyone can access with electrical power, with the right machine anywhere in the world, or you could do it with pencil and paper, really, you know, if you're smart enough, just start guessing numbers and crunching through these functions to see whether you've got a winner. I mean, it, it, it's available to everyone. It's a single unitary market. And, and, the, it, and the supply is predictable and limited by math, right? Uh, that, that was like, uh, you, you know, better gold than gold could ever be, but missing the thing that lets people grok how gold can be valuable, which is the non- you know, like Peter Schiff <laughs> will tell you what makes gold valuable is, uh, it, it, is that it has these other uses and that sort of bootstraps, that sort of bootstraps its, its, its monetary value. But Bitcoin is like pure. No, there's, it's bootstrapped only by uh, the social, right? It's only our demand that bootstraps it. It's our recognition that if others value it, that it will be valuable. And then we have this coordination problem, which just gets solved through Satoshi's genius and other people having experience I did being pulled in, right? I'm one of those people's getting pulled in by the idea, could this work? And then just this act of faith to just start mining or buying it. And then this collective act of faith, which spins up value out of nothing, right? In, in a sort of Ponzi-ish way, but no more Ponzi-ish than, than, than fiat. It's a pure philosopher's abstraction from the monetary features of gold. And it's a pure philosopher's abstraction from the value of fiat as a solution to a coordination problem. So it's just a beautiful, like it's something that a philosopher, I think of Satoshi as a philosopher, a philosopher invented, it solves a number of problems at once. And of course he had lots of predecessors. And it required this anticipation that socially people would buy in because it's worth nothing without demand. But then that prediction turned out to be true. And it was at the one time the creation of an idea that it would only work if people bought in. Um, but given that people did buy in, it's like, it's genius, you know? Uh, it, was, uh, it was a risk. It was an intellectual risk to pour all this tremendous energy into an idea and spin up this value out of nothing when I thought that it was 98% likely to fail and fall flat on its face for a number of reasons, right? I thought it was almost certainly gonna fail, but still fascinating and still an asymmetric bet. And not just a bet, but like, it, it was a, a movement, it was a moment in history, Gutenberg-like, that I part of why I wanted to mine, it wasn't because I wanted to get rich, 
it, it was because I wanted to know it. I wanted to experience and be a part of it. I wanted to share in the moment in history, right? Like you'd want to be in, you know, uh, you'd want to be in a protest that is overthrowing a government or whatever, right? And this was like, I want to be a part of it. It reflected my values, but it was also just like, like it was like being on that Twitter spaces with Nick Carter and, uh, and Nayib Bukele, right? It, it was like, that was this historic moment. I was just, it, that felt, that was that feeling of sharing in this moment, even anonymously and didn't talk about it with my colleagues uh, at work. It, it was like, I was there. And I was a part of that bringing an idea to life. And yeah, for any philosopher, like the idea that you could spin up a world changing idea that undermines our preconceptions of money, disempowers an industry with code, you know, that uh, empowers people around the world, uh, gives them property rights. I wasn't really thinking in those terms, but I was thinking in terms of uh, permissionless and uncensorable payments. that route around these gatekeepers and rent seekers that we could spin all this up with just an idea is like a philosophical fantasy. I mean, most of what we write in philosophy, no one ever reads. And the people who do read it are just other philosophers. And the best you can hope for is like that they say like, oh, oh, that's a smart, that's a cool idea. That's pretty cool. I had that problem and I didn't quite see that solution. And that's kind of like, wow, if somebody does that, you're thrilled. Um, most of the time they're like, ignore it. And then if they don't ignore it, they're just like, yeah, that's all wrong. And that's 99% of the time. The 1% you get people like, yeah, that's actually a really cool idea. I like it, I agree with you. Okay, <laughs> you don't actually like change the world with your ideas. This was a world changing idea that's spun up now almost a trillion dollars of value. And is you know, Hillary Clinton is saying it's threatening the dollar status as the global reserve current. I mean, and, and, and it was a bunch of misfits, right? In 2011, it was like a bunch of misfits. The, the, you know, we, Bitcoin Twitter is still a crazy beast today, right? With all sorts of characters and its own bizarro kind of cultish, whatever. It's cultish uh, nature. But, but it, it wasn't like, it, it, it's not like in 2011, it was some, you know, it, it's not like it was some, uh, you know, priesthood or whatever. It, it, it was, it was a bunch of plebs back then too. A lot of really young people, like people talking about how am I going to pay for my college tuition? And, you know, uh, I, I have to pay my college tuition, but I've just taken a thousand dollars out of my, um, out of my student loans and bought, you know, uh, whatever, like a hundred Bitcoin with it. <laughs> and but like, how am I now, how am I going to pay tuition? It, it, like, Oh, oh, I've 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 sold all my Bitcoin. I only have like fifty left. How am I ever gonna, uh, you know, I I've, I lost my chance to to make to be wealthy or whatever. Anyway, these were like kids. It was kids, you know. And at the same time, it was like cypherpunks and it was cryptographers and brilliant brilliant people uh, who are now running Lockstream or whatever. So it was this combination of basement dwelling, techie oriented adolescents. Um, some ideological libertarian types, some cypherpunks, some people who are really, really smart working at Google or, you know, just um, core developers. Like it, 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 it was a ragtag community of misfits that were shitposting and at the same time up against um, 
Goldman Sachs up against um, the IMF, you know, who were laughing at them or ignoring them. We were in that stage, right? So what a moment, what a moment, a brilliant idea, a brilliant idea that just revolutionized, just turns the, the tables, like these basement dwelling kids are like onto something that Paul Krugman still doesn't get, right? You know, it, 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 they're a decade, they're front running the, the world, the, the most powerful people in the world and brilliant people in the world by a decade. Um, so that was just a, that was just, I was just glad to be there as an, you know, as a spectator because it's the best show ever. It's, it's Bitcoin has been the best show ever. It's true, but it's like watching a soap opera. It's like Game of Thrones. It's like, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing human drama centered on an idea. So as a philosopher and as just a fan of fiction, you know, I, 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 I'm an addict. I mean, I'm still an addict. And, and yeah, what drew me off the sidelines was then I was like, maybe I'm not just a spectator, but I actually have something um, to contribute to this drama. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I go into the ring. So before we get there, before we enter you, uh, before we go to you entering the ring, Let's figure out why philosophy, you know, what, what, what drew you to that? There's, that, that's not a path many of us take, uh, but as many of us have been exposed to Bitcoin, we're being drawn more towards it, which is fascinating to me. Like this, uh, this idea that we are now educating ourselves about money is drawing us to philosophy and, uh, you know, societal um, construct and and how things are going to play out and you're looking at historical um past events that trying to piece all of this together none of us were doing that until we found bitcoin but you had philosophy first somebody somebody or something pulled you to philosophy and that's not something the education system generally does to someone like that there's listeners out there that know my opinions on the education system and i strongly believe it it completely beats out the creative nature of any child and puts them in boxes labels them hangs labels around their necks and does not give them the ability to think for themselves every second of their day is mapped out for them they're not allowed to look out the window. They're actually told, stop looking out the window, which is a true philosopher's instinct. I was going to say, I mean, this was, you just say this, and it's like a huge flashback because I got yelled at for looking out the window. There you go. The <laughs> <laughs> I was always looking out the window. I mean, I was always a philosopher. The truth is, I was always a philosopher. It's kind of what I told your daughter. I, I never grew out of the phase of childhood and I was never a great student um I was an okay student I was a smart kid but I couldn't just grind through tons of boring stuff I didn't care about that was really hard for me I wasn't a good rule follower I wasn't good at taking direction Uh, my mind was always in the clouds quote unquote in the clouds this was I got this like stop staring out the window I also got Get your head out of the clouds, Troy, <laughs> all the time as a kid, right? My mind would just wander. And um, so I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. I kind of, God just made me this way. 
and it's good and bad. It's not always a good thing, right? It, I mean, just, uh, but my older brother is also a philosopher, academic philosopher. And my younger brother, while he, he works for the Library of Congress, he's not officially a philosopher, but he's a philosophical soul. And so is my sister. I mean, we had a very robust, we grew up poor. I grew up in the Midwest. Um, my, you know, my grandparents didn't have an education. My mother had been to college. My dad had not. But we had these vigorous debates around the family dining table, mostly about theology, about God, religion and stuff. So that, that was part of my basis was just also arguing about politics. You know, this thing we're doing today, I'm just mapping you onto my family uh, table. Like we're at the table. Yep. And so this is continuous with my childhood. And it's the same for my teaching. You know, my students are part of my family. And it's like, hey, let's have this. Let's just, it's all dinner table. It's all dinner table conversation from, from childhood, right? And um, so I owe it to my family and my parents just for cultivating a rich, uh, wasn't always sometimes it was you know sometimes we fought we didn't fight fair <laughs> like you have to fight fair in philosophy but you don't have to fight fair in the, around the family table I can get personal but we fought a lot in a, in a good way where that was uh at the end of the day we still loved each other and we could fight and disagree but still love each other and knew that the other person was was still more important to you than anyone else in the world and you'd do anything for them right that that basis of like security and love i mean talk about parenting and you know uh how, how does how do we engage that sense of play and that imagination and keep that spirit alive you know well there has to be a fundamental underlying trust um that that things are okay that allows you the the freedom to roam without fear without fear that you know, it's, it's, it's fear that can shut you down too, not just institutionalization and habit, but also fear. And I was fortunate to be encouraged in my inquiring rather than discouraged. My family's very religious, but they encouraged us to argue and question everything. So yeah, some of it was just my nature. Some of it was my family and, um, uh, yeah, I feel fortunate. And in some ways, you know, professional philosophy sometimes is not that philosophical because it becomes a grind. It becomes like anything else. And it, sometimes you're doing professional philosophy. And I mean, I found myself in this space and it's like, what am I doing here? Why am I, I might as well be at a bank. I might, I might as well, because it feels like I'm just pushing numbers around or I'm just playing chess or whatever. Something that's, you know, you started out with here, you said that the Bitcoin community, like finding its way to philosophy through money, that's almost in a way more authentic and real. Because what's happening is that, I think Wittgenstein who says, philosophy begins with the statement, I have lost my way. But you need something to be disrupted in order to do philosophy. If everything is going just the way you expect it to go and you don't have any questions, you don't need to do philosophy. You know what I mean? You're just like, okay, when's lunch? What do I do next? But when something comes along that just like smashes your paradigms and your expectations, you know what to make is, is this, a, is this a Ponzi? Is this a cult? What the heck is this? Are we completely wrong? Are we the baddies? <laughs> is this terrorist money? Like, you know, everything is being challenged. Um, the, the textbooks are being challenged and you're being attacked 
personally. If you're a Bitcoiner, you've been attacked. People are like kind of think you're gross. Um, you you start digging deep. Like what? Why? What is this? Why? Right? You need answers. And that's authentic inquiry driven by real life questioning of the paradigms that we have inherited and that are thoughtlessly supporting our mental lives. Suddenly those are disrupted and we're like, okay, well, how is the world? And then we engage in the philosophy, the science startup, right? There isn't yet a science of Bitcoin. There's a there's philosophy of Bitcoin because it's like, we don't have yet enough of a grasp on it to, for, to be quite a science yet. I mean, there, you know, I just love seeing these like economists argue that Bitcoin is worth zero because they like pull out their model, like Nassim Taleb, you know, well, <laughs> there's some probability that it hits zero and that's non-zero at some point. And then it's a, that's an absorbing barrier. Ergo, it's worth zero right now. Forget the market, forget price, right? And I'm like, okay, that's, that's cool. You just learned something. You just learned that there's something outside your model. Time to build a new model. Uh, you don't. You don't say. You know, when you find when you find evidence against your scientific theories, imagine doing this in astronomy. Or imagine doing this in biology. Imagine doing this in any other field. You know. Well, none of this fits my model. And then you just turn around and say, therefore, the phenomenon that I am witnessing is not happening. Right. Uh, no. You 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 build new models. It's but. But the, but how to build a new model? Well, here we are at the startup phase. This is beautiful, you know. And and so anyway, Bitcoin is like this along a number of dimensions, and it's just gorgeous to see how Bitcoin affects us socially, economically, uh, metaphysically. What is it? And, and yeah, I just strongly recommend to your listeners to go to resistance.money, where some very good philosophers uh, who are trained in philosophy, you know, Bradley. Uh, Craig and Andrew are taking up all of these questions seriously. And uh, they have two articles in Philosophy Compass that on, on Bitcoin in particular that sort of that sort of survey all of the philosophical questions that Bitcoin touches up against. And the people addressing these philosophical questions aren't all philosophers, right? Some of them are economists, um, George uh, Selgin is taking up the question of what is Bitcoin as, as an economist in a philosophical way, a synthetic commodity money. Um, other, other, other economists have written philosophical pieces about Bitcoin, like, um, like William Luther and uh, Lawrence, Lawrence White, right? So it's not just philosophers doing it, but uh, I, think, I think those three have right now kind of carved the niche for what's the relation between philosophy and Bitcoin. And they're trying to do this kind of like coming at it from both sides. As Bitcoiners, they're all Bitcoiners. And as philosophers, you have this, because I think I have to say this, that a lot of the philosophy that's done on Bitcoin is kind of, eh, it's, it's not, you know, it's, uh, it's not good. <laughs> it's like authentic. It's authentic. It's driven from the right place, but it's like third rate. I have to say, as a professional philosopher, it's not, it's not up to par of like, you know, the best philosophers in the world. Uh, it's just not on that level. So, so we, we do need to close this divide, right? We, mm -hmm. Philosophers are becoming Bitcoiners. Sorry, Bitcoiners are becoming philosophers. 
but they're like baby philosophers. <laughs> and then, and then, um, and then philosophers are good at philosophy, but they are most philosophers are either unaware of Bitcoin or they are like almost the entire academy, like allergic to it because they associate it with something immoral somehow. Pol politically or socially, they're cut off from it, which is this incredible travesty. What's and going to end up happening is that actually the bottom-up stuff from philosophy, from, from Bitcoin, is going to like surpass the top-down stuff coming from philosophy because philosophers won't have skin in the game. They won't have the view from the inside. They won't study the protocol carefully. They're not playing with Bitcoin. And like I said earlier, no amount of work competes with play. So they're just not going to get it as much, right? There's just too much to get. So that you're going to have like whatever second rate philosophers actually doing better philosophy than first rate philosophers who are dabbling. And I think the same thing is going to happen in economics, right? You're going to have, well, it already has happened in economics. The really elite people uh, uh, are hamstringing themselves by not getting involved in Bitcoin sufficiently to really know about it. The same is true on energy and the environment. The, sa the same is true across all of these areas of the academy where we're studying Bitcoin. When I read this paper Mora, by Mora et al. in Nature Climate Change on how from whatever, 20, 2017, 2018, that how Bitcoin alone will raise the emissions, uh, raise temperature over two degrees apart from all other human activity, just Bitcoin mining alone, right? It's gonna push us over two degrees. And it's a group of climate scientists. I looked up all of them at the University of Hawaii, not climate scientists, they're a group of life scientists. All have different specialties, but most of them study, you know, coral reefs or some particular species or how a certain biological system works. The paper is just riddled with misunderstandings of Bitcoin. Like here's what they do. They calculate a la Alex DeVries, digital economist. They calculate the per transaction emissions of Bitcoin by dividing all emissions of Bitcoin by the transactions. They come up with a per transaction, how much emissions are associated with Bitcoin. Then they just ignore block size and assume that blocks grow to be big enough to hold all the world's transactions. Right. So, you know, we had this little war, you know, the block size war. Yeah. They, they don't know anything about that. They, they right. in fact, not only are we going to like double blocks or make them 10 times the size, we're going to make them like 10,000 times the size they are. Right. Just and then and then the per transaction cost will remain the same as it is now, but just scale up. And suddenly we're at like two degrees and this gets published in Nature Climate Change. And then, of course, it's like refuted three times in the same year in the same journal. But it doesn't matter. That's the paper that 70 environmental organizations cite as their only academic source for saying that Bitcoin is going to push global temperatures over two degrees on its own. And they send that letter to Congress and the hearings that just happened a few weeks ago happened because of that letter, right? Okay, so here we have academics dip at the University of Hawaii, know nothing about Bitcoin, dip their toe into it, drop a crappy model based on dipping their toe, and then as a result of that crappy model, they write, they get published in the premier journal of climate change, which is Nature Climate Change. They get refuted, but that gets ignored. 70 environmental organizations, nobody does a simple Google scholar search. Nobody double checks them. They write a letter to Congress, which cites this is the only source that Bitcoin is going to contribute to global warming. 
And then that influences policy because it spawns a hearing, which just happened. Hearing didn't go as badly as I thought it could go. I think maybe they got the memo that, I mean, Bitcoin Policy Institute of which, I, oh yeah, I'm also a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, newly formed. We made a fact sheet, like sort of debunking the letter. And that was widely circulated. And it, maybe that got to lawmakers. The hearing didn't go as badly as possible, but you see the tragedy when this world that I'm in, the academic world, ah, and this other world I'm in, <laughs> the Bitcoin world, when they don't meet up properly because of social stigma associated with Bitcoin. And then it compounds because Bitcoiners are like, ah, those academics, they are all, uh, they're conspiracy theorists basically about academia. So they, they're conspiracy theorists about everything we write about climate change. They're conspiracy theorists about everything we write about like viruses and how they work and vaccines and how they work, right? So we are somehow academia in the mind of a Bitcoin Twitterer Maxi has somehow, it's, it, it's, it's in this one giant ball of wax with like the World Economic Forum, the IMF, and various authoritarian forces that would control them, right? So like we're just part of a grand conspiracy to control Bitcoiners. And then that leads to tremendous kind of withdrawal from dialogue, disengagement, mistrust and frankly just dysfunctional behavior like not getting vaccinated you know, and then just saying like there is no climate emergency and not you know it, so there's this whole cascade of badness from that starts from the academy side they're like it starts with this like populist revolution against experts and from my perspective it's like no it starts with saying shit you don't understand it, you know, we're discrediting ourselves. It, anyone in Bitcoin who reads more at all and sees it published in Nature Climate Change is like, okay, so what does it mean to be published in the premier journal on climate change? It means jack shit. It doesn't mean anything because they published that paper and somehow it made it through teams of reviewers and it beat out like 95% of the papers that were submitted because it's really hard to get published in Nature Climate Change, right? But so they just think like, well, that's what peer review, peer review doesn't mean anything. You know, scientific establishment doesn't mean anything. And we as epistemic authorities, we have a special duty to the truth because when we abrogate that duty and we are not careful in what we say and ordinary plebs can see that we're wrong. I mean, you know, can just see that we're wrong. Then we undermine the credibility of the entirety of the institutions of science, government, journalism. And then we end up with chaos and civil war. You know, it's like this whole cascade of badness. I'm actually, I'm an epistemologist. I study theory of knowledge, right? So this, this phenomenon I'm watching as an epistemologist, and I'm just like, no, no, no. You know, uh, over a hundred years ago, Cambridge mathematician uh, named W.K. Clifford, William K. Clifford wrote this piece called The Ethics of Belief. And he says, imagine a ship owner, right? He doesn't check his ship at all for safety. He just sends it out to sea. He, he has some worries about it, but then he just puts them out of his head. And then the ship goes down and everybody aboard dies. And he says, uh, he says, is he responsible? Yes, he's just as responsible as, as if he knew the thing was uh, unsafe and sent it out. He should have checked his ship. And Clifford actually says this in part because he did survive a shipwreck himself, <laughs> right? He lived, but he was like, 
you know, the ship owner is responsible for every lost soul because he didn't do his epistemic duty in check. And then he goes on to say, and this is the thesis of the piece, that it's wrong always and everywhere for anyone to form any belief upon insufficient evidence. And by wrong, he means literally, morally wrong. And you're responsible when you do that. You're responsible for the consequence of that action. And I've been teaching this paper for like 15 years. And I was always like, yeah, Clifford, you know, that's a little bit strong, <laughs> dude. Always, always and everywhere, believe anything upon insufficient evidence. And there's a wonderful retort by the philosopher William James. Have you heard of William James? No. Okay. American pragmatist, the most famous American philosopher, also 19th century. And James kind of carves out a little space where Clifford is wrong. Uh, like, he's like, we have to have basic faith in other people that's not based on evidence. Like, you know, you, it's, otherwise it's impossible to form friendships because you're always suspicious of everyone. And he carves out religious faith as this exception, exception space where he says like, or you come across a chasm, you need to get across it, right? But you don't know if you can make it. But if you believe you make it, you have a better chance you'll make it. So James is like, sometimes you got to go beyond the evidence, dude. You just got to believe stuff. That's how you live, right? And I was always on James's side. But having seen this breakdown in trust, uh, broadly across experts and institutions, and then this plebeian movement, <laughs> of a populist movement, I'm like, I, I kind of get it, Clifford. And it's not just everybody who has this duty, but especially people who are entrusted with uh, discovery and dissemination of knowledge, which is what the academy is, right? You know, my wife's an infectious disease pharmacist. Like, she, she has incredibly extended training in how to evaluate studies, you know, when, when the pandemic started, she was working 14 hour days studying all the, all the latest studies coming in and all the therapeutics. That was her job. And then to discuss that with other doctors and other uh, healthcare experts, right. To review all the studies. And she led those reviews. Right. And then she put together the hospital's program for how are we responding? Right. And we trust her with that. We can't all do that. Like I'm a smart guy. I get lost completely when she starts reviewing these 40 studies on hydroxychloroquine and why they're whatever when she starts talking about the relationship between in vitro studies and in, you know i get lost we rely on those experts this is adam smith you know this is the history of human economic growth we divide and conquer we specialize we can't all know everything so, so there's no sovereign individual for knowledge that that's that's a fantasy we rely on each other and so how do we do this? We build these institutions of trust. And then we assign other people the job of doing the deep investigation. And then we just believe them because they have established a track record and because that's what we have to do, right? So these bonds of trust are delicate and they allow us to function as a society at a very high level. And I'm watching them just get torn asunder. And it's like, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just watching it just disintegrate. And then the consequences are like, we, like we have people who have COVID who don't need to have COVID because they, or they have a severe case and they don't need to have a severe case, right? Because they could have just gotten a vaccine, but they don't. Or they could get therapeutics, but they won't, right? And it's, it's like literally people dying because this fabric of trust is broken, uh, right? And, and where I really see it most is Bitcoin because that's what I know the most. 
you, you, I know what's the I don't know the principle, but there's a principle that you know if journalists say if you read something, if you know something really well and you read journalism on it, it it's always misguided, but you think they're kind of right about everything else. <laughs> but it's kind of like this for me with Bitcoin. The Academy is so wrong about Bitcoin. And I know that because I'm a Bitcoiner and anybody in Bitcoin would know it. Uh, I'm like, holy crap, we are just, you know, I don't know, we need a name for it. Uh, whatever. We're, we're like, black pilling or red pilling or whatever everybody there's some pill that makes you distrust the, the 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 elites the establishment and we're giving that pill to everyone every time we bash bitcoin without reason we are alienating more people and then we're endangering them along many other dimensions like medicine like climate change um you know like all of these other things where we need trust even international cooperation or even trust in government right like <laughs> We basically make people distrustful along every dimension when we, when we are so obviously wrong and abusive of our trust on one dimension. And yeah, this feels kind of like this is like religious fervor for me, but it's it's real. I, I am one of these people in this role, and I I take responsibility for not disseminating falsehoods. Of course, it's going to happen because we're not perfect, but you, you, you got to do your best. You cannot use your position of epistemic authority to grind axes and defend yourself or use it for vendettas or use it for authoritarian control because you you disrupt this fabric epistemically that we all depend on that distinguishes today from 500 years ago <laughs> you know what i mean this is this is what has allowed us to live in this fancy way is that uh is that is that we trust each other without this division of labor we would all be back to like, you know, it would be like ancient Greece where you could kind of know everything. <laughs> so anyway, sorry, sorry about the rant, but as an academic and a Bitcoiner, this is just painful for me. How do you see that gap being bridged? What's the, the biggest problem? Oh we have to engage in honest dialogue. There's no, there's no alternative, right? We can't remain siloed, but that means that they, and I don't know how to use they because I'm on both sides of this thing, but I'm using it as a Bitcoiner, right? They have to talk to us as human beings rather than treating us like just these creatures like January 6th insurrectionists, which I've been called. Or um, oh, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this movement on the within the academy and on the left to to identify right. pointers with uh un trying to undermine the state and therefore being uh aligned with the the january 6th inter insurrection you know QAnon, whatever I, I if you know this guy dave troy on twitter he's some kind of he's pumping this pretty hard but there are academics who are retweeting him and following him and He's, he's the one who's calling us January 6th insurrectionists. I'm like, what? <laughs> I go with Jan um, 3rd, but, you know, if you could let him know, if you could <laughs> send him a memo. <laughs> some some go with Jan 9th, but, you know, like that that might throw a spanner in their works for a little while. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so how, how does it work? We have to yeah. talk to them. I'm not giving up on them. You know, uh, just recently, yeah, someone made a comment that I thought was really dismissive, like it was like, getting strong incel energy from the Bitcoin community, some uh, very well-credentialed academic. And, I, and I, I was just like, 
okay, um, this makes me angry and defensive, but I cannot lash out <laughs> because what's the end game? We have to get this academic to engage with us and learn and it, it, at least know what they're saying when they say stuff, right? So what do you do? You reach out in the DMs, you reach out on email, reach out in person and just say, hey, let's talk. You know, We have the same goals, we have the same values. Let's get on the same page. You can't just demonize people and walk away. That's not going to help it. So I think I think a lot of Bitcoin Twitter would just be like, the way we solve this is for them to have fun staying poor. They're not going to make it. We're all going to make it. You know, you know what I mean? The slogans, right? You just haul the slogans and be like, sorry, let's spend our time on plebs and just let the whole thing, you know, the academy is like, it's a failing institution in some ways. And it's kind of like, just walk away and let this beast of an institution just collapse on itself. Build your citadel, you know? And I think that's the standard Bitcoiner thing. I'm not there yet. I I don't think I'm ever going to get there. I, I'm like, no, you don't understand how how valuable it is what we're doing in, in, in the academy across the board. Like this whole way of life, everything we have here, it's advances in knowledge along, you know, a hundred different fronts. And um, I'm friends, of course, my friends are academics. They're good people. They are doing important work for humanity. This, this rift has to be repaired, you know? But as I'm saying this, I see the social forces like just, I can't think of a single really well-credentialed academic, like somebody really at the top of their game, who's a Bitcoiner, or he even talks about it non-negatively, non-derisively. Can you think of one? I can't think of one. So that's a bad state to be in. Well, Saif was a fair economist until he saw the light and then just took the orange pill hard and saw through the whole thing. And his his, um, recent book, The Fiat Standard, I don't know whether you've read it yet or if you've got a it. chapter on yet yeah, on fiat education. I did. That, yeah. That that's got to hit mean, home. That I I it, I have very mixed feelings about that chapter. And uh and about him actually. Uh first of all, I don't think he's top tier. I don't think he was ever top tier economist. Uh could be wrong about that, but I don't think he was top tier. And secondly, yeah. He's wrong. He's just wrong. The, the, it's not like the entire academy has been captured. <laughs> that fiat education thing. No, he's not. He's 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 kind of a conspiracy theorist there. Uh, you know, the stuff he writes on climate, he's just wrong. He's wrong. My my, my brother-in-law is a, a a climate scientist at, at University of Washington. Did his PhD in in atmospheric chemistry at Harvard. Flies around in planes like with this super fancy instrument collecting air, right? Over forests, over cities, off the coast of China, analyzing it chemically, right? My co-author at BPI, she's a climate scientist, finished her PhD at the University of Georgia modeling. She's running models of the climate. She's like, she's always like, I can't work for now because my model's got to run for the next three hours on my laptop and whatever. These people are all around me. Of course, they're at my college too. They're not all plotting something. They are legit running models and gathering data and it's just a hard thing to model but they're doing it and uh the consensus that's arising about climate is not 
is not some conspiracy theory that people are trying to foist on people. It's just like the truth. Uh, I, I was on a podcast recently and I, I said this thing, which is, do uh, you, you know the conservative American commentator, Ben Shapiro? I know the name, but I'm not that familiar with it. You're just, you're fine not knowing him. I mean, okay. uh, he's just this snarky debater type, but he's got this kind of really caustic thing he says, which is that, you know, the truth doesn't care about your feelings or facts don't care about your feelings. And it's like atmospheric chemistry doesn't care about your feelings. You know, atmospheric chemistry doesn't feel care about your politics. Like it, it is what it is. And while safe is right, that the Academy is like kind of corrupt in various ways and collapsing on itself. And I don't deny that. And I don't deny that there are elements of politics that have infused a lot of what we do. And that's the kind of tragedy that I'm pointing out, right? It's happening with Bitcoin for sure. But also like the bulk of what is done is <laughs> not that. And when he's critical of peer review, it's like, we don't have a better alternative. There's a ton of like bullshit in that book in the, in the fiat standard. There's some brilliant stuff in the book too. I love the first part, love it, right? But then it's not as rigorous when it comes to meat and whatever as it is in the first part on money. I mean, he's not as good on nutrition and climate science as he is on econ. Surprise, surprise, right? So it, it's like, it's like, yeah, that book needs peer review. That that book wouldn't make it through peer review. Peer review is great. <laughs> we don't have an alternative. Science is a science is like, it's like balance of powers for knowledge. Because when you write something in a journal, other people try to replicate your experiment around the world. And they're going to try to replicate it in places with utterly different politics, utterly different identities, utterly different allegiances. And if they can't replicate it, then, you know, it's like a orphaned block. Your, your publication is like an orphaned block. Like it's out there, but it's not part of the main chain anymore. Yeah, science is like a blockchain. And and we, we, we have forks and we have reorgs and we have orphan blocks, right? But it, it's decentralized. Science is decentralized, massively so. That's why there can't be a conspiracy theory because it's too decentralized. So take the virus, okay? You had, you had uh, all, all sorts of, labs all around the world testing whatever therapeutic was coming down the pike um, hydroxychloroquine ivermectin they're all running studies on it it's easy for somebody to run some study and say ah oh, we got it it works it was easy for another lab to run a study saying no it doesn't work but cumulatively each one of these studies getting picked over by every lab in the world starts to be a consensus built like wait a minute it's actually kind of not effective or we don't have evidence that it's effective yet, or we do. And that consensus takes time and it's messy, but it's, it's kind of like figuring out what the longest chain is. Eventually there's something that's the longest chain. That's the best review of all the evidence. And that's the best way for human knowledge to progress. What's the alternative that you just anoint somebody like safe and, or is it the mob? that people who are untrained just kind of make judgments? No, the mob we gave us a medicine and that was the medicine, that was, that was basically like snake oil, right? <laughs> That's not real medicine <laughs> because the body is complicated. Uh, it, 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 things are, are, are unintuitive about how the body works. So we, we cannot abandon 
the system that we've come up for knowledge. It it is too politicized. It is too centralized. But but there is no better alternative than the decentralized replication of studies in labs around the world and peer review and that hard hard work of building those institutions. We just have to reform the institutions. We can't abandon them. We don't have anything else, right? That's where I guess I'm. I'm not like a a mad dog, mad dog Bitcoiner. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not. I, I mean, I, I'm not descriptively like they might be right. These institutions might collapse. We might have social chaos, and we have to kind of build from the ground up. And it might be kind of like mob craziness, and uh, uh, th- that might be what actually happens. But I'm watching it happen, and I'm like, oh, this isn't pretty. I would rather we make overtures to to repair the damage that we've we've caused from both sides. We need better science education and we need scientists and people in the academy to listen and uh, to be careful. For that matter, the modeling of the, of, of the virus itself uh, was, uh, there were some atrocious moments for science in the, in the early days of modeling. You know, the, the Imperial College model was like really, uh, and I had friends who into modeling and were just like, oh, this is gonna kill us on the climate side because we've made some horrendous modeling errors on the virus. And people are gonna think that modeling the climate is like modeling the virus when it's actually nothing like that. <laughs> Our models are much, much better for the climate, right? So it's this epistemic responsibility and caution that I really feel as an academic. And I hope, your, your point is a great one. What can we do? We just have to do better. We have to recognize the problem, first of all. Read, read, read the fiat standard, I don't like parts of that book. And I disagree with it, but like, I think academics need to read it. They need to read that chapter in particular, right? This is how you're being perceived. Not, not by a know-nothing, but by somebody who is a, a, a good economist, right? From an insider, this is how you're being perceived. And it's even worse from the point of view of the, you know, the rabble. <laughs> it's even worse, right? What are we going to do about it? it you, 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 I, I, what, I, what I really, what terrifies me is that I think that the response from a lot of not so much academics as 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 kind of the 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 intelligentsia and the elite is censorship. You know, we just need to like that was their move with Facebook. That's the move with Twitter. That's 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 the we, we just need to shut them down, shut down their money sources, shut down the venues, and then it's like you know what, fuck that. If that's where it goes, I'm I'm joining the rabble. Like I'm taking off my academic regalia and I'm gonna grab a pitchfork and I'm joining the mob because because for me, censorship is not worth it. And it's like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the mob is a powerful check on epistemic authority. Like when you abuse it, then that whole institution is, is, is gonna suffer and come down and we'll have a revolution and then it'll all be rebuilt. You can, as soon as you build epistemic authority into real power, it corrupts you, it's capturable and it will be captured, it will be used against plebs in the worst fears of, the worst fears of like the Bitcoin libertarians will come true. <laughs> if, if the levers of power are there, they will be used. Instead, scientists need, not to ask us to trust them, but to prove their trustworthiness by being careful and intellectually humble. You need to earn trust. You cannot get it by fiat, <laughs> right? You have to earn it. So, so the power thing terrifies me. 
that 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 their reaction won't be ah we need to do better at science education we need to build these bridges we need we need better transparency in our institutions we need empathy acro across these social divides i mean a lot of it's because scientists and philosophers and academics generally come from a very small segment of society i'm lucky i didn't come from that segment i grew up really poor in the middle of the midwest but most people grew up urban and upper class so the people who are mistrusting them they don't understand them or empathize with them and you know what people who come from where i come from can feel that we feel that disrespect the deplorables i'm one of the deplorables right so well i don't know if i am or not i've been on both sides i you know i don't know whether i'm still a deplorable i i don't know but culturally i'm white trash i'm still culturally i'm a deplorable <laughs> so the deplorables can feel that condescension right and trump is trump is the deplorables fighting back with some self-respect although a terrible move it was their their desire to express their own dignity in the face of what they felt as disrespect and they were willing to elect somebody who channeled that feeling even though he was a madman and like possibly bad on every dimension, like utterly indefensible. But that's how strong that feeling was. And it's still there. That brooding resentment is still there. And the truckers in Canada are evidence of it, right? So the mistrust has to, it's like back to the dinner table, right? You, you have to feel love. You have to feel mutual respect before you can have a debate about ideas. And fundamentally, like, uh, people are not trusting medicine because they don't trust those people, like those public officials, because they're not like them. And because in many ways, they paid lip service to that class of people to get elected, but then just screwed them over materially, right? So they just, there's a fundamental lack of trust on a personal level. And then that bleeds up to the epistemic mistrust. And then, yeah, so, okay, okay. I've that's very sweeping, but that that's a situation we're in. We got to fundamentally repair human relationships across this growing cultural, personal, psychological divide, spiritual divide. We need to heal somehow in order to trust. And then we need to rebuild credibility across this divide. And that sounds very implausible and hard. And it sounds much more likely that one of other, two other things will happen. One is authoritarian power grab by the elites where they just shut down any dissent. Say, shut up, you're hurting yourselves, we know better. And that's terrifying to me. That's ministry of truth territory, that's Orwell. And I will fight against that. I will fight against that. Bitcoin is part of that fight if it comes to it, right? And the other side is just kind of like the pleb movement just disrespects these institutions to such a deep degree that you know they cease to matter and we've kind of already that's kind of already the world we're living in <laughs> for a lot of for a lot of people like the medicine doesn't matter the climate science doesn't matter whatever they just live their lives and you know indifferent indifferent to what to what the epistemic authorities are saying that sounds much both of those sound much more plausible because they're kind of both happening than the vision that I have. But it's like, yeah, it's kind of like those late uh, compromisers pre-Civil War where they were like, no, let's not fight. And I feel like I'm one of those voices like, 
you know, yeah, not only have I been called an insurrectionist from the left, but I've been called a communist from the right on Bitcoin Twitter and a spineless cuck and whatever, a whole bunch of other whatever homophobic slurs that get thrown at me from like the, the big Bitcoin maxis, right? It's just an uncomfortable place to be. Uh, it's so much easier just to go full maxi and just like, you know, I've got my Citadel and have some, have fun staying poor. I'm stacking sats and, or just go in the Academy and just be like, ew, don't touch the poo. You know, it's just gross. It's got cooties. And then, uh, and then just talk about how everybody is so disgusting in the Bitcoin and crypto space because they're all a bunch of scammers and trying to undermine institutions. That's a very comfortable place to be. Your colleagues will all love you, right? The uncomfortable place is like, we need each other. <laughs> Bitcoin is real. It's changing the world. We have to figure out how and what it means. We have to figure out what it is and what it means for money. Like we got questions we got to answer. It's shattering our theories. We need to rethink everything like as academics. And also we can't lose these people. We got a social movement that's ripping away so that our epistemic authority doesn't mean anything to them. We got to repair, we got to build bridges. You know, that's, that's my, you know, lone voice in the wilderness, but it's not, I don't, I don't think it's going to work, but it's still what I got to do. Well, you've, you've clearly felt the pull to, to have this conversation and, and, and here you are. So, you know, well done for, for that and, and stepping up and, and taking on this role. And you're right. It's, it's not a comfortable place to be. Um, I, I would, uh, you know, listening to, to what you were saying just then, um, you know, a few things popped up there and yeah, we, we need to fix these institutions and as a Bitcoiner, I would say, well, then, you know, we need to align incentives. And right now the institutions are broken because the incentives are fiat. The incentives by the peer reviews and, and everything else that you, you just um, described, whether it's modeling out the virus or modeling out the, the next catastrophe or modeling out um, climate change or whatever else, is all funded and fueled by fiat money. So if we can align the incentives and fix that incentive with a sound money, the institutions will get better and the institutions will find truths and the institutions will gain that trust again. And we can all prosper on both sides of this. There is no doubt in my mind. We just need to try and help each other understand that the, the reason this divide is happening is because of one thing, broken money. Because at the root of it all, everything that we do with each other, all of these communications that we have, the goods and services and value that we offer each other comes down to this communication of value. Value is obviously subjective, and we have the decision and the choice over whether we, where we place these um, uh, transactions. It's got to be built on truth. If it's built on a bed of lies, nothing will work and nothing will work again until it's fixed. Yeah, well, that's a beautiful sermon. And uh, I think it it does match a part of what Seyfedin was saying that I agree with, that the incentives around education are broken. And it's actually something that Nassim Taleb also says, he, he says really well, right? That uh, the incentives of, of academics are reputational. And that leads to this weird insularity and 
dis, dis, dysfunctional separation from reality where you have a small group of people all who benefit all of whom benefit from making the others like them more whereas actual market play players people have skin in the game their incentives are aligned with with the market ultimately and of course our market is broken so having your incentives aligned with our market isn't really like having your incentives aligned with real changes in value because our market is is a function of what the fed is doing that day um but but there are other dysfunctions in other price signals that are messed up in education too because of subsidies for for loans because of yeah there's just various ways in which it's not really education is not really a functional market i don't know if i share the optimism that you know if you fix the money you fix the education or whether the problems are <laughs> beyond do you, do you that. know I, I don't know which college you're at but do, do you know however ballpark how much is in the treasury how much endowment uh, is in the endowment yeah, fund there i do yeah because uh, get this i uh <laughs> i was very active in promoting a discussion on campus about um, the investment in our endowment mm -hmm. and whether it's sustainable or not. I, I coordinated discussion among faculty members and I started out sort of advocating for divestment from fossil fuels, but I eventually moved away from that hard position to a more general position that we ought to, we ought to keep sustainability in mind as a priority when we make investment decisions. And that's a much more like a deeper and more powerful move than divesting from fossil fuels, which is just like you could divest from fossil fuels, but, you know, invest in cruise ships and airplanes and fast fashion and um, it, it, your total your total impact on the environment might be worse, or you can invest in fossil fuel uh, fossil fuel companies that are the very best fossil fuel companies, sustainability wise, and that are moving away from fossil fuels and actually, uh, you know, let's say flare gas mining or whatever, that might be a better move than simply not investing in them at all. Anyway, I went down a whole bunch of rabbit holes there, but yeah, in the course of that, of course, I found out like how much we had and yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's close to a billion dollars. It's we're not there, but we're, I don't know what we're at now. Probably, I mean, probably 800 million, something like that, given where we were a little while ago. Um, it, it, it's, it's like 30% of our income. It's 30% of what my salary comes from is that endowment. And, you know, it's the dream of every college. Um, and at one of the places I was at, it was definitely true that you're completely financially independent. Uh, you don't need tuition, you don't need any, you don't need any income because essentially you got a big chunk of the market. Uh, and, and one of the places I was at was like that. They didn't need any income. They just ran entirely on the endowment. Um, and, and the joke is that they're, they're becoming hedge funds with, with you know, universities attached. Um, and I think that's really a very good perspective. When you look at kind of the size uh, the size and impact. And, 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 you know, it just, it just struck me really that like, wow. Yeah. These institutions of higher ed, the, the more elite ones that have good endowments, they, there's a tremendous amount of money being made on them 
by whoever's managing that money, like a tremendous amount. If you're managing billions uh, and you're a standard kind of hedge fund, because they're all invested in like these hedge funds that are uh, private uh, and, you know, they might be invested in a hundred different hedge funds. That's a hundred different hedge fund managers taking a piece every year. Right. And I was like, Oh my God, that's kind of amazing. Like that's where the real financial action is at this college, not in like collecting tuition, paying professors. It's like, no, who gets to manage that money? <laughs> um, yeah. And, and what are we doing? And then I thought I started thinking about it really. It's like, I, a, I teach a Reed college now in Portland, Oregon. I, I love this little college, by the way, love my colleagues. I love my econ colleagues. <laughs> I, I get on all the econ uh, orals boards and stuff. I love my econ colleagues. They've been really nice to me and they've been really helpful in, in helping me think through what money is too. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, if you donate to our college, you're essentially giving money to the market, right? Because it, it stays in there in perpetuity in the endowment. And then Reed gets like a chunk out uh, for its budget every year. We take something like uh, some percentage that's like, uh, based on a on a moving average over I don't know what it is ten years. So if we make eight percent, say over ten years, then we would take out like seven percent of that average to run on, and a little bit would be built into the endowment. So you realize, like, if you give like a million dollars to read, you're giving a million dollars to like the S and P or whatever, and then it's just going to keep growing and growing forever, and Reed will just take a little payout. And I was like, wow, so you're not really, you're not really directly giving money to read. You're really just giving money to capitalism. <laughs> and, and, and yet Reed has this very specific set of values. It's called the most progressive college in America. It's very left-leaning. And not that those are built into its constitution. It's supposed to be politically neutral, but it's constituted by a bunch of left-leaning people. Okay. Very left. So it's like, wait a minute, you give to this college to support those values but there are no restrictions at all on how the invest how the investment actually goes. You just could be throwing money at just like coal mining and you know whatever, <laughs> private prisons, just exploiting people in whatever ways with all the read community members would find horrific. But that's actually where your gift is going. Uh, so I, I did some some advocacy on that front within the college, but more it changed from advocacy to just like learning because I realized I don't know I'm not in your world. I didn't know about finance. And I didn't know how an endowment ran, and I didn't know what it what it meant to 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 make an investment decisions or what the options were at all. And it ended up just being more like facilitating a bunch of conversations. And then we did announce a divestment from primary uh, primary investments in fossil fuels. Right, we're unwinding our our investments in fossil fuels, and that just happened this fall. And I can't really take credit for it, but I did. I think help facilitate that discussion that happened among all the stakeholders at the college, the board of trustees, the students, the administration. Um, I had like, I probably had 60 conversations of a half hour each <laughs> across the college and wrote a big memo about it. Um, and yeah, that also kind of primed me to for Bitcoin and for thinking about Bitcoin as an investment, as uh, its environmental impact, right? Because I was thinking about the colleges and, uh, and I now think on the basis of this really cool paper uh, that Bitcoin is half as carbon intensive as the S&P 500. So per economic unit, you are polluting twice as much 
uh, <laughs> with the S&P as you are with Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, Bitcoin is, is, is worthwhile in so many ways, but one way is it just even Bitcoin, just as it is right now, already greens your portfolio if you're just broadly invested in equities. <laughs> so, yeah, I also recommended it to my college. This was a long time. It was like 20, I don't know, 2014, maybe. I recommended I was I was speaking at a thing with the president of the college and um, the alumni board and the deans and stuff. It was on what's the value of a liberal education. And I was like, well, the value of a liberal education is not the lifetime earnings difference minus the cost of tuition and opportunity costs of going to college. It's not that. Because if you want to get rich, you should just buy Bitcoin. And then it was like 70 people there. It's like broad laughter from the crowd, you know, ah, and I was like, no, I'm dead serious. You should just buy Bitcoin. And then I was like, of course, another round of laughter. And then, and then I was like, actually, we should just put 1% of the endowment in Bitcoin, right? Uh, <laughs> if we had put 1% of the endowment in Bitcoin at that time, on my jokey suggestion, uh, I think we would now have um, only one university would have more of an endowment than we do, which would be uh, which would be Harvard. <laughs> I think we'd be number two. So anyway, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I did, I did push it, but in kind of a joke. Please way. remind them of that. Please remind yeah. them of that. And yeah. you would have a, a much higher degree of trust within um, the the fact. The faculties there as well. I, I am completely convinced of this. And the reason people give you a million dollars is just to offset their their taxes. This this money, this this fiat money that flows in, is just it, there's no accountability there. Again, it comes back to the incentives and this bed of just like distortion and noise and like shit for want of a better word, like that is literally what it is. It's just snake oil. You used that word earlier. Uh, like this money flows in. If you can help them understand, like just take 1%, 2%, 3%, whatever it is, and put that into Bitcoin, that will slowly seep through the whole college from the staff room, from, from the investment uh, professionals down through the the you know the head teachers and whatever else down through the staff from down through the students and this is how we change society I, I i am convinced of that i think it'll come from the bottom up i think it will be the students are you always telling your students then that <laughs> yeah oh yeah so it's just it's a bit hilarious somebody sent me something just a few weeks ago student from uh from 2013, sent me a post of his from Facebook, 2013. Troy Cross cannot stop talking about Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was like, oh, I wish I'd listened to you, Troy. But he, I didn't, of course, I didn't see the post at the time, right? It was one of these, like, he's posting shit about his prop. <laughs> Troy Cross can't shut up about Bitcoin. I mean, I still can't, right? It, uh, uh, no, I, I, I think that our, our, I talked to our chief investment officer, who I really mm -hmm. like. Um, who I really like about Bitcoin. And he's like, I couldn't sleep at night with that volatility. Oh, maybe I can't say that. Maybe you have to edit this out. But, he, he, you know, he, he, yeah, he's aware. He's aware. No, Let me most say, people say that. Don't worry. He's not going to be the first person to you just say, that. you know, and he, he may not mean it, right? He doesn't share how I, it's mm -hmm. proprietary how our investment is managed. He, it's career uh, risk as well. He's worried about, you know, I come from this world. It's, it's career risk. You come from and this world, right? Of course, uh, he cannot turn around and announce to the board that is going to be announced to all of the um, 
uh, investors that's going to be announced to all of the parents, that's going to be announced to all of the teachers, that's going to be announced to all of the students. Yeah, we just went long 1% in Bitcoin. He cannot take that career risk. Like he's 45, he's 55, he's got two or three kids. He's got a well, 50 you on the nail. <laughs> <laughs> That's no, you're right. And I, and I, and I, yeah, I, I, I won't say anything more about him in particular, but I would say, yeah, you're, you, of course, you're exactly right. And, um, and it didn't stop Harvard and Yale from doing it. They're invested in Bitcoin. Both of their endowments are invested in Bitcoin, right? And they have been for a year and a half. So, uh, uh, you know, but it's, it's, of course, it's Swenson who's the, manages Yale's uh, endowment, and he's the one who kind of wrote the book on how college endowments get managed, uh, which we follow. I mean, he invented that model. And he's a leader. I mean, he's the best endowment. So you'll have a few at the top who take that risk because they're David effing Swenson. They can do it, right? Um, so they've grown the endowment to whatever it is now, 30 billion from a few. So, uh, it, 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 but if you, you, you can't take that risk unless you have a rock solid uh, base against which to take it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I, I think I, I, it's, it's, it's terrifying to talk about this, right? Because if discipline were really imposed on the academy, fiscal discipline with, if we didn't have, the, it's mainly the, the subsidies for loans, right? It, that's what makes it possible for people to go to colleges like this, uh, subsidized loans, which then of course lead them to debt slavery, but which also give administrators carte blanche to kind of expand the administrative state. And what you see at, I'm not talking about my college, I'm talking about the whole sector of higher ed is that the ratio of like uh, administrators to faculty is just, you know, shot up over, over the last two, three decades. And I know this because my dad is uh, just recently retired as, an, as a college administrator. And he's like, yeah, the problem is it's regulation. It's not like we're hiring administrators for the fun of it. It's that people keep passing laws, yep. uh, compliance of various kinds. And we have to write and send reports to the state, which never get read, but which might be 500 pages long, which we have to hire people to write, mm -hmm. right? And then there are various kinds of liabilities and whatever. There's a whole system uh, that has been built up of nice to haves and imposed by the state or internally, culturally, that has led to a proliferation of non-essentials to education, but things that kind of make life better or more secure. And that's all been constructed on fiat. It's not just like the acad that's not the research and the teaching. It's it, it, it's the, the industry as a whole has had a tremendous tremendous amount of excess capital <laughs> uh, relative to a free market. And so when you talk about, you know, disciplining this, it's like, I mean, it's collapse. And to some degree, higher ed already is collapsing. Most of higher ed is collapsing. Some of it's thriving. An elite group is thriving and most of it's collapsing. But if you were to pop the debt bubble, it would be... Uh, <laughs> Hold on, just that. Sure. Um, you know, it would be uh, catastrophic and severe, and uh, it's hard for me to think about that because that's my, those are my people, and that's my job, and you know what I mean. I want my institution to do well, and <laughs> it's hard for me to be objective because I, I have, I have skin in that game.
Yeah. So, uh, uh, but 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 broadly, I think it's going to happen regardless because the big system that's keeping that afloat, that's a lot, you know, that huge debt bubble, like that system is fragile, and that system's going to collapse, right? So it's it, it's it's like you know, Bitcoin is this <laughs> David in this David and Goliath story, but you know, David's really good with a slingshot, and uh, this thing you think. Goliath, like being the, you know, the educational industrial complex, and then like, you know, even the Fed and the dollar and and the fiat thing, we think of it as just like invincible. Uh, it's it's actually fragile. That's one of those things. That's one of those insights you have. It's like you start to see, this is a kind of Taleb point. The dollar system is going to be very stable and the debt system through the vast majority of scenarios and probably for quite some time now still, but you see this tail risk. And it's like, oh my God, you know, when, once you see that tail risk, you're like, that's crazy. And, um, and then Bitcoin starts looking like the more secure option. <laughs> it does. And yeah. to, to your point about the, um, the amount of uh, like bureaucracy that's crept into higher education, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with um, WTF happened in 1971, that the, the website that's... Uh, and then you look at that administrative positions graph that they've put in place, and it just hockey sticks up to the, you know, hockey stick through the great. ceiling. And you're like, hmm. So what's the incentive there? What what has fed that? And we all know it's uh, it's the dollar and uh, the, these fiat incentives and very powerful lobbyist groups that have the ability to fund universities or fund certain research that um, form narratives for those people that need narrative formed. Uh, that's such a corrosive and damaging nar narrative. That thing you just said right there, the meta narrative mm -hmm. that just undermines everything that we're trying to do. You know what I mean? We, we, need, we need trust and to build that trust, we need that narrative to be false. We need philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We I need mean, questions. We need truth. Yeah, I, I mean, you can think of you can think of the academy as just like washing the interests of donors in in academic terms, right? Like you 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 need some you need something in DC. Like I guess I'm in Bitcoin Policy Institute. You can, you can think of us as doing that. I'm not doing that. We're not doing that. My my commitment is to the truth. But I'm sure that's the perspective from others. But that's the same goes for any other major industry, pharmaceuticals or oil or anything else. And you could just think of them as like funneling money into the academy and then kind of getting the results that they want, but like washed through the journals, washed through respectability. And then I'm this respectability launderer in my role as an, and then and it's just like, well, then what, why does it matter what I say or what I'm arguing? If my, if my duty is, it, it, if, if I'm a, like the equivalent of a lawyer rather than a truth seeker, a philosopher, right? So that, that goes right to the core of, of our identity and our function in the academy, which is why I really hope you're wrong in that, <laughs> in that narrative. I, I want the academy to be what the academy should be. We need the academy to get back to what it is. Um, the academy was built on thinking, the big questions, truth-seeking, 
been, and I've spoken to a lot, a lot of people about this, including uh, gentlemen such as Sir Ken Robinson, who himself was uh, very, very much entrenched in the, uh, the British education system, a professor himself, uh, and was, um, you know, he, he put together a, a whole report, like you said earlier, I think he spent a year and a half, two years on this report. No one read it. No one read it. And he came to the conclusion, education needed a huge reform from the ground up, from five-year-olds all the way through. And then he went and get, he delivered his, um, he, he retired. He resigned actually from his post uh, that was under the Blair government. And then he went on, on a bit of a personal tear. And that's when he delivered his speech in the end in uh, 2006, a year before the iPhone was uh, released, uh, Do Schools Kill Creativity? The most downloaded TED talk of all time. Still, uh, sadly, Sir Ken passed away two years ago, but his work is very, very um, prevalent now. But like when, when I look through what's going on through, uh, through a Bitcoin lens and I go back, he delivered three TED talks. Um, his second one, what did he re- what did he name that um education and death valley i think it was uh truly phenomenal work uh from from somebody again brought up within academia and then i applied it was it was it was his um inspiration that helped me uh, at a point in my life when my wife and I were making a big decision about our family, uh, we had four kids. I wasn't seeing them. Uh, I wanted to see them and I wanted to make a big change in my life. So I quit my career and we took the four kids out of school and we started traveling and world schooling and homeschooling and alternative education, self-directed education, call it whatever you will. And uh, well, you met Lauren earlier and um, that, yeah. that was just uh, an amazing journey. And on that journey, I found Bitcoin at the same time. So like you, I kind of, I, I, I straddle two worlds. Um, I'm deeply entrenched in the alternative education space. You're deeply entrenched in the academy, uh, but we're both deeply entrenched in the Bitcoin space. So the, the, between us, there's a huge conversation to be had and, and a lot's to be learned. But I think we both want the same thing. I want the academy to be um, that place where real thinkers want to go because they're incentivized to go there. I don't want the academy to be a place where you're expected to go because society has shaped you in such a way to think that the only way you'll be able to ever get a job or ever socialize would be with a, um, a perfect SAT score or a, uh, you know, a, a degree or a PhD or a master's in something that is that's where the whole thing is breaking down It's breaking down very, very early, very early with kids, because we're putting kids, we're testing kids now in the U S especially. I know there's, there's waiting lists for kindergartens in some States and then they're testing kids just to get in a primary school. And then they're testing kids be, you know, presets and all of this. There's so much you're, pressure you're, on the kids. You're actually too, late in the process the preschool is where it's most competitive and preschool oh preschool is where 
you make the connections and get on the right lists to get into the elite private schools that will get you into, I mean, I used to teach at an Ivy League school, right? And I taught at Oxford and right. um, in America anyway, the, the, elite, the elite school, that, that machine starts in preschool. And I know this because I know people are on that, right? And no, my kids will have nothing to do with that. And having taught at those places, my kids will never aim at them because well, I had wonderful students at those places. Don't get me wrong. I had wonderful students and wonderful experiences, but it's corrosive to the soul. And what I want for my children is nothing. I don't want that for my kids. And, um, and I don't know why anyone would. And, and it's also partly why I teach at Reed and I got to plug my college here. Reed is a very special place. Uh, we assign grades, but the students don't see them. Uh, we assign grades basically to make sure people are doing okay. <laughs> because if people are doing poorly, then we let them know. We actually grade several times this semester. We send grades to the registrar just to let, the like, to let advisors know if people are on track. The students don't see their grades. And the reason they don't is because we want the motivation to be internal and not grade oriented, right? We also grade pretty hard. And again, that's because we, it's kind of like, if, you, if, you, if you're interested in super high grades so you can go, go do other great things with your life, it's like go somewhere else. We want people who are coming intrinsically motivated to learn. And then our classes are very small and they're discussion-based and they're Socratically oriented, question-based. And uh, that's because we want you to learn in community. And we want you to learn how to learn with others. So you're gonna inquire as a group organically, even though it might be more efficient for us to spoon feed you stuff. And in math, you're gonna prove everything axiomatically from first principles. You're not gonna learn how to calculate. You're gonna do everything proof-based, right? And you're also gonna learn how to be a part of a democracy that's functioning because governance is gonna be part of what you do. And we have a, we have, we're all completely first name based at the place. So it's a very flat organization. Student government is very powerful. We respect each other. When you enter my classroom, you are a peer. You might be a freshman. You have no training. I'm a professional philosopher of the PhD, but we are peers. And uh, I don't just tell you to believe things because I believe them. I invite you to share your reasons and I will share mine, right? So that's why I'm at Reed because I love that model. I love so much about the college's mission. The mission of the college is so simple and so pure and beautiful. This is the mission of Reed College. It, it, it's, uh, the, it's the intrinsic value. Reed College recognizes the intrinsic value of intellectual pursuit and creative expression. Isn't that beautiful? It's a rigorous and demanding education to, to improve you on those dimensions. There's, that's like, that's kind of it. That's like, the, I kind of butchered the wording, but that's our mission. It's a perfectly focused intellectual mission, right? Can so we change it, it to uh, recognizing the subjective value? Just to, you know, put a little bit of Bitcoin Austrian economics on that. Because, yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, so, because the value so is subjective, right? Because if, if, if a student comes and gets one experience from the, the four years or three years that they're with you, it's going to be completely different to the girl or the boy that they, they were sitting next to in the class. It's oh, going to be yeah. completely subjective. 
oh yes, totally. And actually, this is why I re very much resist the, the 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 regime of metrics, which try to impose a vision of student success on everyone and then measure how well we're doing with respect. I'm like, no, that's not. I mean, that might be fine for producing widgets, but it's not fine for producing people because there are no metrics for people. <laughs> They're just aren't. I mean, it's something like parenting, right? You've got four children, right? How would you measure your success as a parent? Well, it's impossible. It's impossible because they're going to they're going to be beautiful and surprising in ways that you did not anticipate with your little metrics, right? Or they're going to be nasty failures and meet your metrics <laughs> because you know what I mean? It's like it's it's I said this I said this actually back at that that talk that I was talking about in like 2014, I talked about metrics a little bit and I was saying how, you know, if your metric is like lifetime earnings, difference then you're just going to pick the richest people in the world as the most the best people but or the most successful but that's clearly wrong uh there are many many ways to be successful right and yes the college experience is going to mean something different to everyone so the thing that i wrote which then kind of got butchered by some other people but when i wrote my own piece on this it was the goal at reed is to create an environment which is aimed to allow you to figure out what your good is. What is the good for you? Because that's just part of like Amer America's founding vision, right? You get to decide the good for yourself, that e each of us has a right to envision uh, the good life. That's called the pursuit of happiness. Uh, not happiness in some trivial sense, but in the deep Aristotelian sense of eudaimonia, that, that, that fulfillment and excellence. But what that means is gonna be different for each person. So college should be a place where you discover and refine what is the good for you. And you do that with other people. You don't do that alone. You do that in community. It's not a solo exercise. And you don't just think about the good for you. You think about the good for the world around you. You're not just about you, right? And then that's like stage one of something we're trying to aim. Set you up so that you are well positioned to do that. Nobody can give you a recipe for doing that. But we can surround you with a bunch of like smart, like-minded people with the right books and the right cultural inputs to allow you to build a vision of the good life for yourself and to practice building it with others. But then also we can equip you to start pursuing that good life with the tools that you'll need. So you're the source of the good life vision, but we, get, we, we give you the tools to figure out what it is. And then we give you the, the tools to pursue whatever it is that you find as your good. And of course it's gonna change over time, right? To me, this isn't, this never got adopted as like our official document or anything, but to me, that's descriptively what college should do for you. So it's compatible with very, very different subjective values of the education because not everybody wants to go on to grad school. Not everybody wants to even finish college. Like I was even talking about dropping out, like, you know, our most famous graduate at Reed is a dropout. It's the founder of Apple, Steve Jobs. He dropped out of Reed. Uh, is that a success for Reed? Yes, Reed taught Steve Jobs calligraphy. And it was calligraphy that led Steve Jobs uh, to, to create Apple's uh, uh, fonts. And he talks about this in his uh, commencement speech at Stanford, right? How his calligraphy class together with his engineering knowledge led to the distinct thing he did at Apple, right? That's totally our success. We at Reed, we did, you know what I mean? We made that guy. <laughs> we made that guy. So 
Um, you know, like that, but he dropped out. So by a metric, he's a failure. By our metric, he's a failure, but he's a huge success. And the same goes for whatever, you know, uh, many, many other college dropouts. There's like all the cool people in Bitcoin are college dropouts, <laughs> but it's, 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 yeah, that subjectivity is, is impossible to, to eliminate and you don't want to eliminate it because it's the source of, it's, it's, it's coincident with autonomy and self-expression and self-discovery and your, your, your alternative education, like, yeah, it's the, the dehumanizing aspect of uh, the institutionalization that, that education can impose on people, draining out the creativity, crushing that imagination, crushing that spirit of play. It precisely is the elimination of the subjective with bean counterism. And, you know, what's, what I'm seeing is, I mean, the problem with Reed is it's so freaking expensive. It's like 70 something thousand dollars a year to attend. And uh, it's an elite education. It's an education for kings and queens. It, it, it engages the mind. It connects you with history. It allows you to create. But what plebs are getting is the mass-produced factory education. And they're not being, they're not getting the real deal, right? They don't get, they don't get to commune with the great minds of history and to sink into the, the, the cultural product of uh, multiple civilizations, multiple perspectives, right? Instead, they're given tools to advance their career to the next stage, which really serves the market or the government and not their own flourishing, right? And flourishing in this way, this kind of education that I have fancifully described just now, this is reserved for the rich. And um, that's, the, that's the future I see is like a bespoke, rich, expensive, but wonderful kind of throwback Socratic education that's tailor-made to each person. It's non-traditional, but high touch very high labor costs because it's got to be personal, you know, on the one hand, and then just like mass produce, throw people YouTube lectures on the other hand, and then give them like assessment tests. You know, that that's what I see that that divide. And it worries me because I see it as a class divide. I, my vision of education is this beautiful classical education, not exactly classical, but Socratic philosophical free-ranging, playful, imaginative, in some ways useless education, right? One that goes beyond use to, to flourishing. Imagination, leisure, the Greeks talked about as leisure, right? That as, as, as something we give to everyone, you know, that's expensive. I don't know how to give it to everyone, but I, think, I fear that we're moving towards a feudal structure where that kind of education is only given to the uber elites and everyone else is like, mm, you know, they're told what to think. They don't, they're not allowed to question. And then, and then all the, yeah, all, all the creativity originally just kind of drummed out of them and they're, they're taught social conformity and they're taught, uh, they're taught to, to, to be good workers and then and then they're unhappy and then that's not going to work they're going to rebel and they're going to they're going to foment and like then and then we and then we get truck we get the trucker phenomenon we get you know we get the january 6th phenomenon we get like these expressions of rage and disrespect because their fundamental human autonomy has been abrogated and denied so so it's like 
the system of repression doesn't work, but it can work in the sense that it can make you dysfunctional <laughs> and it can deny you this, you know, it can make you narrow-minded. It can make you parochial. A lot of what I learned, what I love about my own education was I grew, I grew, I grew up thinking of the world in this very small way because I didn't have access to uh, great works of, 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 of thought and history. And, and, and when I discovered like Plato in, in, in fourth century Athens was thinking the same kinds of things I was thinking, but on a completely different level and way better, I was like, whoa, there's a whole tradition of people having these kinds of thoughts, but they're like the most brilliant people who ever, who we have records of and their thoughts are connected to each other. And it's a grand conversation spanning thousands of years. I had no idea this even existed. These kinds of thoughts that I'm having are just one more in this grand tradition. I want everybody not to have that experience, but have that as a possible experience for them. You know, you know what I mean? Because it was so beautiful for me. It was so wonderful for me and opening up my world. And I know lots of people feel the same way about their education, right? It's not, not about the job it gave me. It's, it, it, it freed me from a tiny world and introduced me to a giant world. There's, there's one thing I want to pick up on there. Which, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm being um, confrontational at all. Um, but, oh, no, uh, go for it. But, but Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, yeah. right? One of the most recognized uh, entrepreneurs, one of the uh, most successful people on our planet is still labeled a dropout. This is dehumanizing at the very essence of dehumanizing someone, to call them a dropout. And that is a fiat education term. I oh, would call him an opt-out. Steve Jobs oh, opted out because he looked at what was going on around him at that time in his life. He sat back and he thought about what was going on. He ingested the information. He assimilated the information and he made a decision. And he opted out and he became the person he became because of that option. He didn't drop out. And we've got to move away from this because we label all of the most successful people in our, on our planet as dropouts. It's wrong. Okay, good. I, I'll stand corrected. But if you look at, I'm actually just quoting Jobs himself. And what he says is that he dropped in. Okay. Ah, okay. Yes. So, he, yep. he, he stopped taking classes and paying tuition, but, and I'm very proud of this. I'm very <laughs> proud of this. Steve Jobs was coming to classes for free. We educated this guy for free. We didn't charge him any money because professors weren't going to keep him out of the classroom. So he stopped paying and then just bummed around. These are his words, you know, with roommates in Portland and then just kept coming to classes to learn and and we facilitated him we did not charge this guy any money so so yeah i'll take your take your correction but i like to characterize him not as a dropout but he's a drop in those are his words he dropped in as after dropping out that's his that's his thing but i, I take your point he um, hacked the system yeah and only yeah. Uh, only a way that steve jobs could have done <laughs> In a way that, yeah, exactly. Uh, but it was, you know, it was uh, also a time period where it was very revolutionary, you know, culturally in America at that point, right? So, uh, 
I, I don't think that would happen now at, at Reed. We're too institutionalized and, you know, 70 grand intuition. We're not letting people just drop in anymore. But it's kind of sad. That, that's uh, inflation right there. That's inflation. I mean, yeah, almost no one can afford this education. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, the inflation is insane. You know, housing in Portland is kind of uh, like out of range for starting professors at Reed. It's just crazy. Uh, the tuition, you know, yeah, t tuition is nuts compared to what it was uh, 20 years ago. Uh, and, and, and yeah, you know, I have students who, inflation is real. I have students who say come from Vancouver, Canada, and they say like none of their high school friends is, they're all moving away from Vancouver, Canada because none of them can afford to buy a house there, right? None of them can afford to stay in their community. So this inflation is weirdly like tearing apart the community, but it's also, yeah, keeping people out of uh, higher ed when they could otherwise go because like inflation is insane and it's cost too much. So yeah, on, on, the, on the one hand you have education is cheaper than it would be in a free market because of subsidies for loans. But on the other hand, it's more expensive than it would be because of, inf of inflation. <laughs> um, uh, generally has kept wages lower. So I don't know, we, we, we don't have a real market. Like you say, you know, we don't have an accurate price signals. I think this is a deep argument about Bitcoin, and you're probably better positioned to evaluate this than me. But the truth that's in Bitcoin is of, is of two forms. One is the kind of on-chain truth that it tells you that tells you about work that's been done, physical work, right, in that longest chain, because you know these math problems have been solved, and that takes energy, and so that you can trust what's on the chain. So there's that on-chain truth and truths about what has transpired in terms of energy spent. But then also hard money gives you another kind of truth, which is truth in price signals and, and safety makes a lot of this, right? And then what results, what kind of world results from accuracy in price signals? You know, genuine accuracy in price signals and the inability to simply blow bubbles wherever power wants to blow a bubble and distort those price signals. What does that world look like? And, um, you know, I don't know because I don't have a supercomputer in my head, but just like the principle of it would, it, as a philosopher, the principle would, it seem to be that accurate price signals would lead to more efficiency in production and more efficiency in, in more proper consumption, consumption that's like, does what it's meant to do. So, so that the whole economy should just like do much, much better if all price signals are accurate, <laughs> right? I mean, so I think like in a way, would education be more, would it be less? Like, I don't actually know how distorted and where the distortions lie in those price signals, but I bet people would be wealthier and we would have more abundance if we had accurate price signals. And then education would be something we could afford because we would have gained all this efficiency throughout the entire economy. Right. So I would love to see what education would look like under a sound money standard. I, I truly would. Uh, it's um, and, and you're right, but because we don't have the correct price signals, we don't have uh, correct investments. We don't have interest rates, uh, correct interest rates. We, we don't know where to allocate our time and our energy and, and, right. and where to invest, whether that be invest for um monetary gain or for, um, you know, philanthropic uh, pursuits. 
it's all fucked. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> There's no other word. Like to, to There's describe. no other word for it, is there? And you know, when I come back to early education, and because you brought up Plato, one of my favorite quotes from Plato, and I'll read it so I don't butcher okay. it, is knowledge which is acquired under compulsion has no hold on the mind. Therefore, do not use compulsion, but let early education be a sort of amusement. You will then be better able to discover the child's natural bent. So let's just leave the kids alone for 10 to 15 years and then let the academy be there for when they're ready when they've sat on a hill looking at the clouds philosophizing asking the big questions in their own head and discussing it with their peers rather than be sat 45 minutes in a spanish lesson and then shuffled down the corridor for a minute and a half into an english lesson and then shuffled down the corridor for a minute and a half into a math lesson where you can never get into a flow state and you can never find what you're actually interested in because you are interrupted every second of the day and it's just like leave the kids alone please let's build let's rebuild on a bitcoin standard let's find the truth let's let let's let people let their minds wander where they need to go and then that's where the academy can be it's like wow i know what i want to do now where are the professors where are the big thinkers where are these people? And if those, if those academies are built through these endowments on a Bitcoin standard, they don't need these special interest groups to keep funneling through, through money, through fiat. They're like, no, they can just close the door. No, we, we, are, we are concentrated on one thing, and that is educating the people who want to walk through our doors. And it can be free if we're on a Bitcoin standard. It's beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful vision and, and, uh, call me yeah, a dreamer. <laughs> it's, it's hitting hard because my kids are, you know, young and in school and, and, and it's like, ah, uh, yeah, I just thinking back to my own days in school and how miserable I was. And, uh, I don't want that for them. They seem to be enjoying it right now. My daughter's in kindergarten uh she 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 loves it i mean she loves the social connection some of it is we've been so cut off from people from the pandemic right kids growing up now it's really weird it's like a massive social experiment of isolating children mm -hmm. from each other it's like oh you know i mean oh so much learning is this all the neuronal development that's going on with uh, uh with 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 social socialization and uh, so it's I, I i i like it for that but I am deeply concerned too. My kids are just so wonderful in terms of their their instincts. They're it's so a, it's, a, it's a fine line, isn't it? We we want them to socialize, but we do not want them to be socialized. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really well said. That's really well said, da Daniel. I actually we've gone on. We have. I actually have, have. This is awesome conversation. We didn't even talk about my idea. We, I we did not. I have to go. I have a meeting with this uh, this think tank. Okay. Well, but, orange pill them. That that no, that's no no. They're they are they are the orange pill think tank. This is this is the Bitcoin <laughs> Policy Institute. They're already Excellent. all orange. Uh, but, all right. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll ask you one quick fire question, and then we'll close it down, yeah. and we'll, we'll we'll perhaps do a, another round on this. Uh, so, and I have to ask you this because the listeners expect it. It's the last question of every podcast. 
If you had one orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? Oh, that's so good. And there's so many names rushing through my head. Um, I kind of think Noam Chomsky. It's be the one I would orange pill. Because his view on, I think, I think, I think if he thought of Bitcoin, and I, I know he's had some recent interview with Breedlove, with Robert Breedlove, I don't know how it went. But I think if Chomsky could see what Bitcoin could do to stop economic imperialism, he could articulate Bitcoin as a tool of financial freedom for, at the kind of geopolitical scale, right? Um, picture a world under the Bitcoin standard as freeing us finally from economic domination of various kinds, economic colonialism. And I think he understands economic colonialism as well as anybody and what that means. So he would understand how Bitcoin could create a different world. Yeah, it's not a great answer, but I'm not Noam Chomsky. He's also, he's, he's also I, I imagine this, this, this pill as also, you know, giving him the, the, the vigor of youth of Chomsky, like, you know, 40 years ago, back when he's like, you know, debating William F. Buckley or whatever, 50 years ago. You know, it's, uh, I don't know if Chomsky's quite quite as sharp as he as he was. I mean, he's in his nineties, but yeah, like I'd love to see that. And you know, to some extent, that that person is Alex Gladstein. <laughs> not that Gladstein is is aligned with Chomsky on everything. He's not. I think he sees Chomsky as a genocide denier, but he's got that similar kind of perspective where it's like how how could Bitcoin uh, usher in a world of a more just world geopolitically. And as so much of our world is shaped by, by imperialism of various kinds, but in particular economic imperialism in ways that people don't quite understand. And, and, uh, that's not my story to tell, but wow, it's a story I would love to read. It's a story that needs telling. And when I think about the most important thing Bitcoin does, it's, it's really provides freedom to people around the world to, to store their their wealth, transfer uh, value, um, and it's really hard to think about that at the global scale. It's easy to think about it like me not getting, you know, not losing my wealth to inflation or individuals, but to think about how it changes um, global political dynamics, it, it, it takes someone like someone like that, someone like smarter than me, like Chomsky. Right answer. And there's no wrong answer. That's the beautiful thing about that question. Troy, I'll let you go, man. This has been an, an incredible rip. Uh, there's definitely it really has. Topics. It really has. I mean, this got very real. This got very real because, you know, like you, I'm sure, right? My kids that like on a scale of one to a hundred and things I care about, um, the kids are at a hundred and like the next thing on that scale is at like 20. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And then Bitcoin's at like five. <laughs> you yeah. know? It's just like the kids just, and so when you tap into that, it's like, it just gets more real than anything else we could talk about. It truly does. It truly does. And uh, we, I will follow up with you in the DMs and we'll figure out, um, even yeah, we'll if have we have another, 
a personal conversation or whether we record it, whatever it's, um, we'll have another conversation another time. Let's make it kind of like, let's throw it out there in the future because this idea is kind of making the rounds. I've just talked about it on some other podcasts. Right. And mm -hmm. so then maybe, you, you know, maybe your listeners, they don't want to hear from me for a long time. Then when they do want, maybe I come back with like where the idea has gone, how, mm -hmm. how is manifesting in the world? Right. And maybe we can talk about where, where we go with it. That'd be cool. And hopefully you've orange pilled your uh, CIO. So uh, if yeah. if you're if you're listening, Mister Reed CIO, you know, give me a give me a bell. We 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 got <laughs> lots of things to discuss from the financial. Oh, world. can I actually send him to you? Please do, please do. I I I would love to have a conversation with him. And um, you know, I I spent eighteen years in the the foreign exchange world. So yeah, I know about his his troubles. And um, yeah, I've had a lot of exposure. Oh, that's awesome. So that's awesome you have yourself a good afternoon say hi to the think tank and uh please uh, thank you please keep thinking thank you, the bright orange future and thank you very much troy. hey everybody thank you so much for listening and thank you again troy for coming on and giving up your time to go through these uh very interesting topics and where you see this thing heading and how you think we can Across these divides uh, like we were discussing there's so much conversation to be had so much conversation is needed and let's hope that uh, that the people that you're seeing on your side from within side the the Academy are starting to see out and uh, take a little peek at this bright orange future that uh, us Bitcoin maxis can see uh, you know we're not all crazy uh, mofos on Twitter that is obviously a lot of bravado and good fun and it is needed um but honestly everybody is fully open to dms make sure they reach out to anybody within the community if they have any questions send your cio my way please and i'd love to have a conversation with him guys if you want to reach troy it's at the tro crow on twitter his dms are open join the conversation go find him there Thank you again, everybody, for listening, for rating, subscribing, doing what you do. Streaming is... Thank you so much. Big shout out, Ben Gunn. I know you're streaming on all the pods that you listen to. That's huge work. Really appreciate what you're doing. Value for value is going to be a great thing in the next two to five years. You can use Fountain app. They're a great app for that. Or Breeze Tech or go check out Sphinx. There'll be more coming. Watch this space. Thank you again to the show sponsors, Swan Bitcoin, longtime supporter of the show. They are in the US, swanbitcoin.com, Relay across Europe, R-E-L-A-I, coincorner.com in the UK. And then Bitcoin Reserve have you covered across Europe. All your euros and sterling, they can handle it from 50,000 and above. And get your hardware wallet, Bitbox02 by shiftcrypto.ch. Don't forget, check if you can get to the conference and get there. Thanks for listening, guys.